Chapter Fourteen of An Amiable Charlatan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirsten Weber. An Amiable Charlatan by E. Phillips Oppenheim. Chapter Fourteen Mr. Bundercombe's Love Affair. Mr. Bundercombe, who, notwithstanding his wife's temporary absence in the country, had not been in the best of spirits for several days, during the course of our tete-a-tete dinner at Luigi's, became suddenly and unexpectedly animated. The change in him was so noticeable that I leaned forward in my place to see what could have produced it. Two people had entered the restaurant, and were in conversation now with Luigi about a table. Mr. Bundercombe, who in the affairs of everyday life had no idea of concealing his feelings, was regarding them with every appearance of lively interest. "'Paul,' he whispered, "'you must notice these two people. Watch them, there's a good fellow.' They took their places at a table almost opposite ours. The girl, though she was more quietly and tastefully dressed and seemed to me better looking, I recognized at once as Mr. Bundercombe's companion at Prince's Restaurant on one memorable occasion. The man I had never seen before. He appeared to be of about medium height, slim, with a sallow skin, dark, sleepy eyes, which suggested the foreigner, a mouth that, straight and firm though it was, turned up a little at the corners, as though in contradiction of his somewhat indolent general appearance. He was exceedingly well-dressed, and carried himself with quiet assurance of a man accustomed to moving in the world. "'Most interesting,' Mr. Bandicombe murmured, having with an effort withdrawn his eyes from the pair. "'The girl you doubtless recognize. She was once a typist in the office of Messrs. Harding and Densmore. She was quite lately, as I dare say you remember, able to give me some very useful information.' In fact, it is through her that Mr. Stanley did not leave this country for South Africa with a hundred pounds in his pocket. "'And the man?' I asked. Mr. Vundercombe was thoroughly enjoying himself. He drew his chair a little closer to mine, and waited until he was quite sure that no one was in earshot. "'The man,' he replied, "'is one of the world's most famous criminals.' "'He doesn't look it,' I remarked, glancing across the room with some interest. Mr. Bundercombe smiled. "'Great criminals are not all of the same type,' he reminded me reprovingly. "'That is where you people who don't understand the cult of criminology make your foolish mistakes. Our friend opposite is, without a doubt, of gentle, though not of aristocratic birth. I know nothing of his bringing up, but his instincts do all that is necessary for him. The first time I saw him was in one of the criminal courts in New York.' He was being tried for his life, for an attempted robbery in Fifth Avenue, and the murder of a policeman. He defended himself, and did it brilliantly. In the end he got off. There is scarcely a person, however, who doubts that, that he was guilty. I looked across at the subject of our discussion with renewed interest. "'He shot him, I suppose?' I asked. "'On the contrary,' Mr. Bundercombe replied. "'He throttled him.' The man has the sinews of an ox. The second time I saw him was at a dancing-hall in New York. He was there with a very gay party indeed. But one of them, the wealthiest, mysteriously disappeared. Rodwell, Dagger Rodwell, was his nickname, came to England. 
I saw him once or twice, just before I visited you down in Bedfordshire. Colin warned me off him, however, wouldn't let me have a word to say to him. He doesn't sound the best companion in the world for your little typist friend, I remarked. Mr. Bundercombe glanced across the room, and at that moment the girl noticed him. She bowed and waved her hand. Mr. Bundercombe responded gallantly. "'I fancy,' he murmured, "'that she can take care of herself. Come, I really feel that I am in an interesting atmosphere once more.' Mr. Bundercombe's deportment was certainly more cheerful. For the last week or two he had been depressed. He had paid visits with Eve and myself, and devoted a reasonable amount of time to his wife. The demands on his complete respectability, however, had been irksome. He was too obviously finding no savour in life. I really was not altogether sorry at first to notice the improvement in his spirits, though my sentiments changed when, a little later in the evening, the girl opposite left her place and came over to us. She greeted Mr. Bundercombe with the most brilliant of smiles, and he held her hand quite as long as was necessary. He presented me, and I learned that her name was Miss Blanche Spencer. "'I must not stay long,' she said, laughing. "'The gentleman I am with is a sort of cousin of mine, and we don't get on very well, but I mustn't be rude.' Mr. Bundercombe and she seemed to have a good deal to say to each other, and presently I noticed that their heads were drawn closer together. The girl dropped her voice. She was proposing something to which Mr. Bundercombe was listening with keen interest. I heard him sigh. "'If it weren't for certain changes,' he explained regretfully, "'I guess I wouldn't hesitate a moment, but—' I heard a whispered reference to myself as his daughter's fiancé, and an allusion to the continued presence of his wife in London. She nodded sympathetically. "'Now, if there were any other way,' Mr. Bundercombe concluded, "'in which I could still further show my gratitude to you personally for a certain little matter—' "'Why, I'm all for hearing about it. I consider the balance is still on my side.' She laughed. "'You're really rather a dear,' she declared. "'Do you know I'm thinking of starting in business for myself?' "'Where? And as what?' Mr. Bundercombe inquired. I shook open an evening paper and heard no more. The girl's leave-taking, however, a few minutes later, was both reluctant and impressive. I felt it my duty to allude to the matter as soon as we were alone.' "'You know, sir,' I said, "'this helping young women to set up in business is a proceeding that's very likely to be misunderstood over here. I am not in the least sure that even Eve would quite approve.' Mr. Bundercombe smiled, the smile of a man of the world. "'One can't tell one's womankind everything,' he declared grandiloquently. I was a little puzzled. I felt convinced that Mr. Bundercombe was concealing something from me. Furthermore, I continued, feeling it my duty to speak frankly to my future father-in-law, a man of your position needs to be very careful when he has financial transactions with a good-looking young woman as Miss Blanche. The young lady herself might take advantage of it. Mr. Bundercombe appeared to be giving my words full consideration. Well, well, he said a little vaguely, we shall see. I don't mind telling you, though, Paul— that I would have nothing to say to her first suggestion, on your account, my boy. There's a scheme on foot, in which her interesting companion is concerned, which needs financing. I haven't the least doubt that it is something entirely interesting, probably a mammoth jewel robbery or something of the sort. 
I looked across at the man, who seemed to be reproaching the girl for her long absence. Almost at that moment he looked up, and our eyes met for a brief instant. There seemed to be nothing in his gaze beyond a measure of polite and not too pointed interest. Nevertheless, when I looked away, I begged Mr. Bundercombe to call for the bill. "'I've had enough of this place,' I declared, a little abruptly. "'Next time Eve goes to bed with a headache, I shall take you to the club.' I was walking down Bond Street with Eve one morning, when my suspicions as to Mr. Bundercombe and a certain matter were first roused. As we neared the Piccadilly end, I distinctly saw him vanish through a doorway on the left-hand side. He was more carefully dressed, and carried in his hand a long paper parcel that could contain nothing but flowers.' Upon some excuse I prevailed upon Eve to cross the road. There was one small brass plate only on the side of the entrance through which Mr. Bundercombe had disappeared. It was scarcely larger than my hand, and on it was engraved in very elegant characters, Blanche Manicure. I made no comment at the time. Curiously enough, that afternoon, as we sat under our trees at Ranelagh, Eve referred to the subject of her parent. "'Do you notice, Paul?' she asked. "'How much less we see of Dad lately?' "'He does seem to have been out a good deal,' I admitted. She glanced at me. "'You haven't any idea, I suppose?' The glance and her tone were quite sufficient for me. I hastened to disclaim all responsibility for Mr. Bundercombe. "'Your father,' I assured her, "'has never treated me with less confidence. "'Whatever he may be doing at present, "'he is doing, let me assure you, "'entirely on his own responsibility.' "'Then I think, if you don't mind, please,' she begged, "'you must try and get him to take you into his confidence. "'Of course,' she went on, watching idly a polo team canter into the field, "'I do not wish you to feel that he is in any way a responsibility. "'On the other hand, it does seem so queer, Paul. "'He has taken to dressing most carefully, "'and he leaves the house regularly every morning at ten o'clock. "'You've no clue at all as to what he does with himself?' I asked. None, she replied, except that I never saw anyone with such over-manicured nails as his. I never knew him to go to a manicurist in my life, but he's obviously going to one nearly every day now, or he couldn't keep the polish on. If that helps in any way, it might, I admitted with a sigh. There he is, Eve exclaimed suddenly, coming towards us, too. Do please take this opportunity, Paul, and see if you can find out anything. "'You see, a week ago he seemed bored to tears, "'and now he has just that happy, contented expression "'which he wears all the time "'when he really is engaged in something outrageous. "'I will go and talk to your sister. "'I think she's over there with Captain Green.' "'Mr. Bundercombe greeted me heartily "'and at once directed my attention to a small tent "'where cool drinks were being served. "'I suffered him to lead me in that direction "'and placed myself in his hands "'as regards the selection of a suitable beverage.' We found a small table and sat down. "'Haven't seen much of you lately, sir,' I began. "'Ha! Huh, that's because I don't spend three parts of my time in milliner's shops,' Mr. Bundercombe replied. "'Where are you spending most of your time?' I asked, determined to take the bull by the horns. Mr. Bundercombe set down his glass. "'I've been expecting this,' he remarked pleasantly. "'Eve's been setting you to pump me, eh?' I nodded. "'That's exactly it,' I admitted. "'We are due to be married in ten days. "'We are neither of us anxious for anything in the way of an unfortunate incident.' 
Mr. Bundercombe appeared to view with surprise the advent of a second tumbler. He reconciled himself to its arrival, however, and handed money to the attendant. "'I realize the position entirely, my dear fellow,' he assured me. "'I am glad you have opened the subject up. I have been bursting to tell you all about it, but I have hesitated for fear of being misunderstood.' I glanced at his nails. "'Of course,' I observed slowly, "'the position of an elderly gentleman with a marriageable daughter and a wife,' I went on bravely, "'who finances a young lady interested in manicuring in an establishment in Bond Street is liable to misinterpretation.' Mr. Bundercombe was a little taken aback. He hid his face for a moment behind the newly arrived tumbler. "'Kind of observant, aren't you?' he remarked. "'I saw you in Bond Street this morning,' I told him. "'You and a paper parcel. You were entering the establishment, I believe, of Mademoiselle Blanche, whoever she is.' "'Small place, London,' Mr. Bundercombe sighed. "'Were you, er, alone?' "'I was with Eve,' I replied. "'But she did not see you, and I did not mention the matter. "'My boy,' Mr. Bundercombe decided, "'I shall take you wholly into my confidence.' I am engaged in a big affair. My heart sank. I can only pray heaven, I said fervently, that the denouement of this affair will not take place within the next ten days. On the contrary, Mr. Bundercombe answered, leaning back in his chair, looking at me with the flat of one hand laid on the table and the palm of the other on his left knee. On the contrary, he repeated, the denouement is due to-morrow. Mm, "'Glad you didn't consider us,' I observed gloomily. Mr. Bundercombe smiled. "'I find myself in this last affair,' he remarked airily, "'occupying what I must confess, for me, is a somewhat peculiar position. I am on the side of the established authorities. I am in the cast-iron position of the man who falls into line with the law of the land.' In other words, you behold in me, so far as regards this affair, respectability and rectitude personified. I may even choose to give our friend Mr. Cullen a leg up. I was relieved to hear it, and told him so. I presume, I said, that Mademoiselle Blanche of Bond Street is identical with the young lady who talked to us at Stefano's the other night. Say, you're becoming perfectly wonderful at the art of deduction my future father-in-law declared. Same person. She seems quite attractive, I admitted, with a taste for pink roses, I think. Mr. Bundercombe appeared to regard my remark as frivolous. He moved his chair, however, and brought it closer to mine. I dare say you remember, he went on, how the young lady proposed to me that night that I should finance a little venture in which she and her sleepy-eyed friend opposite were interested. I nodded. "'Yes, I remember that.' "'From that,' Mr. Bundercombe continued, "'she went on to suggest that I should help her in the ambition of her life, "'which, it seems, was to take a single room for manicuring a few clients. "'In an ordinary way, I should have refused that, too, "'and, if she had been hard up, begged to be allowed to oblige her with a trifling loan, "'and ended the matter in that way.' The reason I didn't was simply because I felt convinced that her desire to require a single room in the manicure business was somehow associated with the scheme she had at first suggested. Therefore I temporized. I appeared to be interested. I asked her in what locality she wished to commence business. 
She never hesitated. There was only one place she wanted, and that was the room she's got. Just to test her, I took her to see really slap-up premises in another part of Bond Street. She pretended to look at them, but never took the slightest interest. It was just one room she wanted, and one room only. I realized that both she and her friend were either too desperately hard up to engage that room, or else they were particularly anxious to do it in someone else's name. That was quite enough for me. I engaged the room. I glanced once more at Mr. Bundercombe's nails. You, at any rate, I remarked, have been a faithful customer. Paul, Mr. Bundercombe continued, I am playing a part. I am playing the part of a silly old fool. It isn't easy sometimes, but I am keeping it up. I spend a good part of my time in that beastly little parlor, having my nails done over and over again. The girl is bored to death, and I, though I don't flatter myself that I show it, I guess I'm bored to death, too. I've kept it up all right until now, and the job comes off tomorrow. Miss Blanche is convinced that my interest in her is sentimental, and she has occasionally not been quite so careful as she might have been. I have picked up here and there certain small details that enable me to form a very fair idea as to the nature of this venture in which I was invited to participate. The last few days I have been hesitating whether I should take you into my confidence or not. As it happens, you have forced it. Have you anything particular to do tomorrow? I thought for a moment. Nothing very much until the late afternoon, when I go down to the house, I replied. Then tomorrow you shall see the end of this thing with me, Mr. Bundercombe promised. If luck goes our way, you will find we shall have quite a pleasant few minutes. Eve put her head in at the tent, and we hastened to join her. She drew me a little to one side. I think it's all right, I told her. I am so glad, she replied. And, Paul, hadn't you better drop Dad a hint that Mrs. Bundercombe will be home tomorrow? I think he'd better have the shine taken off his nails. At twelve o'clock the next morning, I met Mr. Bundercombe by appointment in the Burlington Arcade. We strolled slowly round into Mond Street. Mr. Bundercombe was, for him, unusually serious. He looked about him all the time with swift, careful glances. As we turned into Bond Street, his pace became slower and slower. Within a yard or two of the spot where I had first seen him disappear, he paused, and, under pretense of talking earnestly to me, he looked up and down and across the street with keen, careful glances. At last, with a sudden turn, he led the way into the passage. Together we ascended the stairs. On a door, almost opposite to us, at the end of the landing, was another little brass plate, on which was engraved the name of Mademoiselle Blanche. Mr. Bundercombe took a latch-key from his pocket, and opened the door, which he carefully closed after him. "'No one here,' I remarked. "'Not yet,' Mr. Bundercombe said, a little grimly. "'From now onward you will be able to understand certain things. Miss Blanche informed me that today she had an invitation to go into the country.' It was the only way I could discover the day in which they were planning to bring off the coup. If I had been an occasional visitor, she might have risked my coming and finding her away. Since, however, I presented myself every morning at eleven o'clock, she was forced to tell me. You understand as much as that? Perfectly. You see where we are, then, Mr. Bundercombe continued. 
"'Has any reason occurred to you for the young lady's unalterable decision "'that no other spot in the whole of London would do for her manicure parlour?' "'I looked out the window. "'We are next door to Tartarin's,' I observed. "'Mr. Bundercombe smiled approvingly. "'We are within a few yards,' he said, "'of the jeweller's shop that contains more valuable gems "'than any other establishment in the world.' "'We are at the present moment within forty yards of a million pounds worth of jewels. "'When you come to reflect upon the character and the past of our friend Dagger Rodwell, "'you will understand the significance of that fact.' "'I was beginning to share Mr. Bundercombe's obvious excitement. "'I, too, had the feeling that we were on the brink of an adventure. "'He made me stand up against the wall by the side of the window, "'so that I could see down into the street. "'He himself was farther back in the room.' "'Follow my lead closely in everything, Paul,' he directed. "'Meantime, keep your eye glued on the pavement. "'If things turn out as I expect, "'there will be a grey touring motor-car outside Tartarin's shop "'in the course of a few minutes. "'From that car will descend Dagger Rodwell. "'He will enter Tartarin's. "'Watch, then, as though your very life depended upon it.' "'I squeezed myself against the wall "'and looked down upon the never-ending procession. The street was continually blocked with motor-cars and taxicabs. On the other side of the way, streams of people were moving all the time. I recognized many acquaintances, even those few minutes. And then suddenly I saw the grey motor-car. I held out my hand to Mr. Bundercombe. Without the slightest attempt at concealment, the man Mr. Bundercombe had called Dago Rodwell alighted from the motor, and stood for a moment looking into the window of Tartarin's shop before he entered. He was faultlessly dressed in morning clothes, smoking a cigarette, and carrying a silver-headed cane. After some hesitation, he entered the shop. Mr. Bundercombe drew a little breath. He had been looking at another part of the street. "'Now things are beginning to move,' he observed softly. "'Come here, Paul.' He pulled aside a little curtain, behind which was a sort of cubicle, an easy-chair, a manicurist's stool at a table. "'Step inside here.' he whispered, quickly. I obeyed him, and in an instant he had entered a similar one. We were scarcely there before I heard the sound of a key in the door. Through a chink in the curtain I saw Miss Blanche. She pushed back the latch and stood for a moment as though listening, her face turned towards the stairs up which she had come. If I had had any doubt but that tragedy was afoot that morning, it would have been banished by a glance at her face. She was terribly pale, her hands were shaking. Rapidly she withdrew the pins from her hat, hung it up on a peg, and smoothed her hair in front of the looking-glass. Then, though her hands were trembling all the time, she filled a bowl with hot water, and arranged a manicure set on a little table. Once or twice she stopped to listen. Once, as though drawn by some fascination she was powerless to resist, she moved to the window and looked down into the street. Mr. Bundercombe remained motionless, and I followed his example. At the back of my cubicle was a window from which I could still gain a view of the pavement. The streets were thronged with people, and I noticed that the motor-car, which at first I had missed, was standing in a side-street almost opposite. Suddenly I saw the man, for whose reappearance I was so earnestly waiting, step casually out onto the pavement. He attempted to cross the street, and was quickly lost to sight in a tangle of vehicles. A second later I could have sworn that I saw him back again at the entrance to the passage below. Then I heard a shout from the pavement, and I distinctly saw him clamber into the motor-car, 
which shot off as though it had started in fourth speed. An elderly gentleman, who had rushed from the shop, was halfway across the street already. There was a chorus of shouts, traffic was momentarily suspended, a policeman started running down the side street. Then I turned away from the window. There were sounds closer at hand, a footstep on the stairs, swift and gentle. In a moment the door of the little manicure room was opened and closed. Dagger Rodwell stood there, pale and breathless. Not a word passed between him and the girl. He dashed into the third of the little cubicles, and it seemed to me that in less than thirty seconds he reappeared. The change was marvellous. He was wearing a tweed suit and a grey humbug hat. His eyeglass had gone. Even his collar and tie seemed different. He sat down before the girl and held out his hand. They listened. There was plenty of commotion in the street. No sound at all on the stairs. "'We've done it,' he muttered. "'They're after the car. They'll catch Dolly.' "'He'll bluff it out,' she whispered. "'Sure. Don't let your hands tremble like that, you little fool. We're safe, I tell you. Get on with your work.' Now the two were three or four yards away from the cubicle in which I was, but almost within a couple of feet of Mr. Bundercombe's. From where I was sitting I suddenly saw a strange thing. I saw Mr. Bundercombe's left arm shoot out from behind the curtain. In a moment he had the man by the throat. His other hand travelled over his clothes like lightning. It was all over almost before I could think. Rodwell was on his feet with a livid mark on his throat, and Mr. Bundercombe had stepped back with a little shining revolver in his hand which he was carefully stowing away in his pocket. "'Sorry to be a trifle hasty, Mr. Rodwell,' he said. "'I saw the shape of this little weapon in your pocket, and it didn't seem altogether agreeable to me. We are not great at firearms over on this side, you know.' Blanche and Rodwell stared at him. To complete their stupefaction, I stepped out of my cubicle. "'What sort of game is this?' Rodwell muttered, though he was pale to the lips. "'Blanche!' He turned toward her with sudden fierceness. She sat there wringing her hands. "'Mr. Bundercombe!' she exclaimed feebly. "'Mr. Bundercombe!' "'So this is your silly old fool, is it?' Rodwell hissed. "'This is the old fool you could twist round your finger, who found the money for your manicure parlour, and who was in love with you, eh? What are you, anyway?' he added, turning furiously upon Mr. Bundercombe. "'A cop? Is this why you were trying to put up to me a few weeks ago?' Mr. Bundercombe waved aside the accusation. "'Nothing of the sort,' he declared. "'Then what is it you want?' Rodwell demanded. "'Is it a share of the swag you're after?' Mr. Bundercombe shook his head. "'I'm afraid,' he sighed, "'there will not be any swag.' Rodwell's face was the most vicious thing I had ever looked on, yet he kept his head. Mr. Bundercombe and I were an impossible proposition to an unarmed man.' "'In the first place,' Mr. Bundercombe said, "'I must congratulate you most heartily on your scheme. "'I saw your double bolt cross the road and jump into the car. "'Everyone's eyes were upon him. "'They never saw you slip round into the passage. "'Your double is, I presume, well supplied with an alibi "'and evidences of respectability?' "'Rodwell nodded shortly. "'It's his own car, and he's an automobile agent,' he replied. He'd been in the next shop. The people there will be able to swear to him. He gave them plenty of trouble on purpose. And you, Mr. Bundercombe murmured, 
have the necklace. I have, Rudwell snapped. What about it? I've got to divide with the girl here. How much do you want? Only the necklace, Mr. Bundercombe replied. Mr. Rudwell's geographical description of where he would see Mr. Bundercombe first is too lurid for print. Mr. Bundercombe, however, only shook his head with a gentle smile upon his lips. "'If you're not a cop, and you won't stand in, what in the name of glory are you?' Rodwell spluttered at last. "'I am afraid I must describe myself as a meddler,' Mr. Bundercombe confessed. "'An intervener. I stand midway between the law and the criminal.' I sympathize wholly with neither. I admire the skill and courage you have shown to-day, but I also sympathize with the head of that establishment whom you have relieved of possibly many thousand pounds worth of diamonds. I could not— Rodwell then made his effort, but Mr. Bundercombe was more than ready. Intervention on my part was quite unnecessary. Mr. Bundercombe's left arm shot out like a piston-rod, and the unfortunate victim of his blow remained on the carpet— with his hand to his cheek. "'Quite in order, of course,' Mr. Bundercombe remarked, "'but absolutely useless. Boxing was my only sport when I was a young man, to say nothing of my remarkable athletic young companion. It won't do, Rodwell. You'd better hand over the jewels. Give them to Miss Blanche, and she'll hand them over to me. They're in a Morocco case, I think, in your trousers' pocket.' Rodwell produced them sullenly. "'It's your fault, you miserable little fool,' he muttered at Blanche. "'I ought to have known better than to have let you in on the thing. Fancy taking him for a mug.' Mr. Bundercombe smiled a pleased smile. "'Come, come,' he said. "'Things are not so bad. You might have been caught.' "'Aren't you going to give information?' Rodwell asked quickly. "'Not a thought of it,' Mr. Bundercombe assured him, catching the case Rodwell threw towards him. I want, so far as possible, to see both sides happy. Here, Paul, put these in your pocket, he added, turning to myself. If you take my advice, Rodwell, he concluded, you'll stay where you are until I return. I promise you that Mr. Walmsley and I will return alone, and that I will give no intimation of your presence here to any person whatsoever. Rodwell was puzzled. He rose slowly to his feet, however, and walked toward the basin at the other end of the apartment. "'All right,' he agreed sullenly. "'I shall be here.' Mr. Bundercombe and I descended into the street. I was feeling a little dazed. Mr. Bundercombe led the way into the Tartarin establishment, which was still in a state of disorder. He asked to speak to the principal, who came forward, still looking very perturbed. "'Sorry to hear of this robbery,' Mr. Bundercombe said. "'Have they caught the fellow?' "'They caught the man in the motor-car,' the manager groaned. "'But he had no jewels on him, and my people can't swear to him. He seems to have a very coherent story.' "'Have you communicated with the police?' Mr. Bundercombe asked. The manager stretched out his hand. Four of them are in the place now,' he answered, a little despairingly. "'What's the good?' The fellow's got away. He's got the finest necklace in the shop with him. Gems worth twenty thousand pounds. Mr. Bundercombe nodded sympathetically. Have you offered a reward yet? We can't do everything in ten minutes, the manager replied a little testily. We shall offer one, of course. What amount are you prepared to go to? Mr. Bundercombe asked. The man looked at him eagerly. Do you mean, sir, he began, 
Mr. Bundercombe stretched out his hands. "'You may search me,' he interrupted. "'I have nothing in the way of jewels on me. My name is Joseph H. Bundercombe, and I have a house in Prince's Gardens. This is my son-in-law-to-be, Mr. Walmsley, M.P. for Bedfordshire.' The manager bowed. "'I know you quite well, sir,' he said, and Mr. Walmsley, of course. Both he and many of his relatives are valued clients of ours. But about the jewels—' "'What reward do you offer?' Five hundred pounds,' was the prompt reply. "'More, if necessary.' Mr. Bundercombe smiled approvingly. "'Circumstances,' he explained, "'of a peculiar nature, into which I am quite sure it will suit your purpose not to inquire, have enabled me to claim the reward and to restore to you the jewels.' The manager gripped him by the arm. "'Come into the office at once,' he begged. We followed him into a little room at the back of the shop. He was trembling all over. "'No questions asked?' Mr. Bundercombe insisted. "'Not the shadow of one,' the manager agreed. "'I don't care if—pardon me, sir—if you stole them yourself. The loss of those jewels would do the firm more harm than I can explain to you.' Mr. Bundercombe turned toward me, and I produced the case. The manager seized it eagerly, opened it, turned on the electric light, and closed the case again with a great sigh of relief. He held out his hand. "'Mr. Bundercombe,' he said, "'I don't care how you got these. I have been robbed three times, and put the matter into the hands of the police, and never recovered a single stone. I'd shake hands with the man who stole them, so long as I got them back. How will you have the reward, sir?' "'Notes, if you can manage it.' Mr. Bundercombe replied. The manager went to his safe, and counted over notes and gold to the amount of five hundred pounds, which Mr. Bundercombe buttoned up into his pockets. "'I ask you now, sir,' he said, "'for your word of honour that you will not have us followed or make any further inquiries into this affair.' "'It is given, freely given,' the manager promised. "'When you leave this establishment I shall turn my back to you.' You may hand over the notes to whosoever you like upon the pavement outside, and it won't concern me. Nor, he added, shall I tell the police for at least half an hour that I have a necklace. They deserve a little extra trouble for letting the fellow get away. Mr. Bundercombe and I left the shop, and ascended the stairs leading to the manicure parlour. Rodwell, who had bathed his face and made a complete change of toilet, was pacing up and down the little room. Blanche, too, was standing— still pale and weeping. "'Now,' Mr. Bundercombe began, as he carefully closed the door behind him, "'I told you a few minutes ago that I was neither on your side nor on the side of the law. I am about to prove it. I have returned the jewels to Tartarin's, no questions to be asked, and I've got the reward. There you are, young lady,' he added, placing the roll of notes and a handful of gold in her hand. You have given me a week or so of intense interest and amusement. There is your reward for it. If you want to divide it with your friend, it's nothing to do with me. Take it and run along. So far as regards this little establishment, the rent is paid for another three months. But so far as regards my connection with it, I think I needn't explain. That you've been fooling me, the girl interrupted, a faint smile at the corners of her lips. "'Do you know, sometimes I suspected that you weren't in earnest? "'And then one day I saw your wife, and I wasn't sure.' "'Good morning,' Mr. Bundercombe said severely. 
Come along, Paul. End of chapter 14 Recording by Kirsten Weber